You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Calls to defund the police over the last several months are making way for important conversations about reimagining our nation's public safety, and especially what public safety means in the context of our cities. We are really at an ideological crossroads in this part of American life. And while that rethinking and reforming policing is certainly a crucial part of this conversation about a new approach to public safety, it's far from the only thing that needs to be addressed. My next guest has written about the role of emergency management in low-income communities of color, something we all know a lot about here in Michigan. Eric Cadora is the founder and director of the Justice Mapping Center, and he describes emergency management governance as a kind of, quote, soft authoritarianism and compares it to living in a neighborhood where houses are always catching fire and the fire department is constantly swooping in, suspending normal sovereignty and civil liberties in favor of a kind of martial law. It's necessary to put out the fire and save lives. But in anything but the smallest doses, this kind of safety net can become a prison cell. Eric Cadora, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much, Steve. Uh, so let's start with some context uh, and this idea of emergency management governance. Uh, we in Michigan have a very particular experience with it over the last decade, uh, a wide range of experiences, frankly, uh, with it. Uh, but but put it in a national context for us. What does emergency management governance look like in other cities and in other states in uh, in our country? Well, it's uh, a very common phenomenon that really is um, has been triggered in part by uh, the conversation on criminal justice reform, because when we talk about the overreach of uh, law enforcement and uh, other criminal justice institutions uh, as a way of, um, you know, ostensibly addressing unsafe neighborhoods, uh, what we really find is this um, overcompensation for the lack of the kinds of uh, uh, civic, civil society infrastructure and networks, social, economic, health networks, that are the real font of safety in most places. Um, the, you know, the funny, uh, I've always thought the ir- ironic response that... Um, uh, uh, Representative Ocasio said when asked what does, uh, you know, what does a neighborhood look like without police, she ironically answered a suburb. And that was ironic because what she was really pointing to in many ways there was the presence of these civil society uh, sort of institutions and the kinds of networks that enable you to advance economically and socially and educationally that are what's missing and what we've been doing for the last 40 years is trying to address those weaknesses resulting from inequity and and uh, lack of investment by overcompensating uh with criminal justice responses now that's happening everywhere that happens in pockets of neighborhoods in every single city in the country and what you'll find are remarkably disproportionate um, rates of arrests, rates of incarceration, etc., 
in small pockets of neighborhoods. The thing is, the same source of that overcompensation, the same trigger, are the same ones that trigger other sorts of last resort governing responses, like the use of emergency rooms for what are really chronic care, health care issues that mm-hmm. have been, uh, because of lack of good uh, uh, health care, um, uh, uh, have been um, neglected. Uh, similarly, lack of other civil society institutions and networks of support that make uh, underinvestment in public schools a problem for educational achievement are then oftentimes responded to with sort of a governing through crime vision of punitive uh, um, expulsions, suspensions, uh, even school arrests, when in fact with time and other sorts of, of attention and greater investment in these networks, you wouldn't have that. So you start counting all of these emergency responses, whether it's uh, critical responses, last resort responses to schools, to safety, to health care, to housing, through temporary shelters and evictions, etc., and even to uh, just uh, 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 sustenance issues in terms of jobs, you know, unemployment insurance, TANF, SNAP, etc., you get this remarkable overlapping use of last resort government concentrated in the same neighborhoods. Mm. And it amounts to this very heavy emergency management footprint in those places where those are supposed to be last resort responses that have now become everyday experience. Yeah. And, and talk about the interplay between that dynamic and that system uh, of responding to underinvestment and the idea of democracy. Uh, I, I think you can't really have this conversation without talking about how how damaging it is to the idea of self-governance uh, and and really the the, the 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 kind of crux of the matter that, that that you were just talking about is that we are damaging democracy not just through the use of these kinds of emergency responses to uh, to, to to things that 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 happen but through the underinvestment uh, the the withdrawal from the neglect of these institutions and systems that should be working uh, in in everybody's community in the in the same way so that so that emergency management or emergency powers become a proxy for the anti-democratic policies that have been in place for for such a long time that's that's spot on in a, in a couple of different ways I mean the divestment um, that's taken place really since the 1980s, has lasted, you know, nearly uh, 40, 50 years now, has resulted in exaggerating these, um, uh, these disproportionality. And in many ways, that divestment really calls for what my um, late uh, colleague and friend, Eddie Ellis, used to call a Thurgood Marshall Plan. That is what uh, I think is increasingly called a Justice Reconstruction Plan. And uh, it's a reinvestment in at the neighborhood level. It's why, for example, in all honesty, piecemeal reforms to individual 
uh, sort of criminal justice agencies aren't going to do it in and of themselves to help extract neighborhoods from this cycle of um, almost sort of semi-martial governance through these last resort mechanisms. But there's also another dimension to this sort of democratization issue, and that is much closer to the sort of self-determination role. And even with a uh, kind of hefty investment, and in many ways we may be heading there. There are signs in the current administration on a federal level, and just a historical sweep, I think, in which uh, this um, lack of investment um, has perhaps run its course. And uh, we are thinking differently economically today than we have in a long time, which has been triggered by a number of things, including, of course, the crises, the, the, this economic, uh, social insecurity that has been triggered by the COVID pandemic, which has exposed a wide swath of Americans to the kind of crisis circumstances that people in these particular neighborhoods live under every day, but which many Americans have not been aware of, but are now getting firsthand taste mm. of what that's like, and therefore are more open to a, a heftier investment in the kind of civil infrastructure that we need. But if that kind of investment is to be intelligently and uh, uh, in many ways proportionately invested, we have to increase uh, the democratization of policymaking, not just electoral politics, but the actual function of policymaking and budgeting at the local level, so that we need to bring together uh, community-based organizations, stakeholders that have been operating in neighborhoods, whether it's through multi-service provision, economic development, community banks, tenants associations, etc., have to play a role in policymaking priorities, execution, and in fact, budgeting. Mm. Uh, that's going to, and, and there's, you know, the walls against that um, is sort of, we've fallen into this idea of a kind of policymaking technocracy. Only experts can participate in those kinds of things. And the limits to policymaking participation are electoral. But in fact, there are hundreds of examples of how much more effective it is to engage and involve uh, local stakeholders who have long experience at working at the local neighborhood level in policymaking decisions by government. Uh, Secondly, within government, among government, there are so many walls and silos, mm -hmm. right, between labor or health or education or housing or criminal justice, which belie the truth and the social realities of the challenges that they are trying to address, which are multi-sectoral. Everyone where, where these experiments in sort of blended and braided budgeting across uh, government agencies has shown that it is a much it addresses a much deeper understanding of how health care affects schooling about how schooling affects home life about how housing affects uh, criminal justice 
that we realize and know there are specific ways in which all these dimensions of life, which are experienced sort of as a whole by individuals and residents, but which are chopped up and divided up according to agencies, which have built up walls against blending their approaches, both in terms of coordinating planning and programming, as well as blending and and, uh, braiding budgets to uh, uh, better address uh, um, goals in places rather than simply sort of agency-centric slices of the pie. Mm. I'm talking with Eric Kadora. He's the founder and director of the Justice Mapping Center. He's written a piece in the Washington Post about why emergency management governance is really a dangerous way of providing a safety net in American communities. Uh, We're talking about something that we talk about a lot here on the program, which is the underinvestment, the disinvestment that uh, visits on so many communities uh, in our country and, of course, here in our state, and the ways in which uh, that requires really uh, uh, inappropriate uh, responses to things when they go wrong. Uh, Think of our own experiences with emergency management here in the state of Michigan, the wide range of communities that have had to have emergency managers either in charge of their schools or in charge of their cities. Uh, And think of all the things that could have been done over a long period of time to prevent those communities from falling into uh, that crisis state that uh, demanded that something be done. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us how you feel about this approach. Uh, to to the governance and and to community building in in our state and in our country. Do you think there is a better way to do it? Is there a more systemic way of building communities in a way that uh, doesn't send them into these kind of crises or provides the kind of institutional support to deal with crises in a really different way than we do right now. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDT Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter, and uh, we'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way. Um, Eric, I want to talk about Flint, uh, a city that uh, has struggled with disinvestment for decades here in in Michigan uh, and was in an extremely fragile state when it was put into emergency management. And the decision was made to save money on water, that the the money the city was paying to the city of Detroit, in fact, uh, for clean water was, was not sustainable. And so they switched to the Flint River which is a pretty polluted source, uh, and failed to put the chemicals in, in, uh, into the system that would have prevented lead leaching uh, and led to the, one of the biggest public health crises in any uh, American, American city. Uh, talk about the ways in which this narrative that you lay out in your piece uh, is, is, I think, so vividly captured by uh, a city like Flint. Absolutely. What an unfortunately indexed example of this reality Flint uh, is. When we first started talking about this, um, we we couched it in this question of what we called million-dollar blocks, 
which, of course, was an ironic euphemism for our estimate of how much states and cities were spending per block to remove and return people to prison and jail for an average of two to three years at a cost of a million dollars per block. But, of course, that money wasn't being spent on the block. It was being spent to finance and essentially rent prison cells. And we use that metaphor to really help you understand what the trade-off is. By, by identifying million-dollar blocks, we were asking the question, what is the return on our public safety investment of a million dollars a year per block here on the safety and well-being of that block? And what you immediately can recognize is that it's like contrasting renting versus a mortgage, right? You're not, you're not building any public safety equity by investing, by paying all of your, uh, paying out all your resources in renting prison cells. I mean, putting aside all the other collateral harms and challenges it creates through, for example, a system of broken ties and constant in and out migration in concentration of mainly parenting aged men uh, in and out of particular neighborhoods. And it is a kind of, you know, it's such an old phrase, of course, uh, uh, penny wise but pound foolish. It betrays this idea of trading a, rea- a reactive, last resort kind of um, expenditure for a preventive investment. And in the long term, it ends up being, of course, not only more costly, but terribly misserves the need. And, uh, and in fact, opportunities that could be available to entire neighborhoods, huge groups of people in neighborhoods whose talents and, um, and, and, and capacities are entirely hamstrung by this divestment in preventive chronic care everyday support in favor of last resort, fix it at the, at the moment of crisis responses, which we never exit. And we continue to cycle through until that becomes the everyday life of people there, whether it's, whether it's the water insecurity and all the health and uh, um, uh, dangers that are caused by that, as well as just the outright disruption of everyday life, which, again, was witnessed in uh, Texas during mm-hmm. the recent uh, cold weather um, bout in which the electrical system broke down that had been divested in, and uh, people were left completely at the mercy pardon me, of this kind of lack of investment. And so you had a whole swath of people exposed to constant insecurity that don't realize that there are neighborhoods in every city that are always under that kind of insecurity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Eric Cadora about crisis management uh, as a way of dealing with long-term policy issues uh, in our communities. Uh, We want to hear from you on the phones as well. Call and tell us how we build better communities that don't fall into crisis or are better set up to deal with crises as they come up. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. 
We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm talking with Eric Kadora, the founder and director of the Justice Mapping Center. He's written a piece, a piece in the Washington Post about why emergency management governance is a really dangerous safety net. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the segment as well. Tell us what you would do to build better communities. Think of the number of communities here in the state of Michigan that fell into our emergency management oversight uh, at the state level. Think of the outcomes uh, for the people who live in those communities. Uh, in some cases, absolutely uh, disastrous. And of course, the city of Flint uh, wound up the site of one of the largest public health disasters in American history, in large part because of emergency management. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Eric, I want to talk about what happens now. So here in the state of Michigan, we still have an emergency management law on the books, same as we have for uh, more than a decade now, but no governor is ever going to use it again. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, the, the Flint water crisis really just absolutely poisoned the idea of uh, that approach to, to, to any crisis. I can't imagine anyone, anyone actually invoking it anymore. But that doesn't mean necessarily that uh, we've got a better way to deal with these crises as they come up. We're not investing uh, more in cities. We aren't preventing the things that helped Flint fall into, into you know, that, that kind of uh, financial crisis. Uh, we aren't doing anything about the depopulation that uh, communities of color have suffered uh, that yanked wealth out of those, uh, out of those communities that, that would help prevent these crises. So, so what, is the, what is the first step in a different direction, and do you see anybody taking it? Uh, yes, happily, there are lots of examples going on today, and they're they're both um, they're both solutions and they're preparatory. That is, you know, you can even without uh, huge new investment, which nevertheless is absolutely necessary. But even without it, there are so many more effective ways to invest existing resources. Uh, uh, that that already exist on the ground in ways that are much more strategically effective at pr pr moving out of this kind of emergency response system into a more preventive chronic care system. And that goes in sort of two directions. One is sort of from the top down in terms of federal and state enabling of localities to overcome whether it's statutory or bureaucratic walls that prevent more effective combinations of government agencies and community organizations to blend their available resources to solve particular problems. 
And we have examples of that on federal, state, and local levels. One example being like a children's cabinet uh, in which multiple agencies of government are brought together to solve childhood uh, problems and challenges faced by the jurisdiction, but which demand cross-agency collaboration and investment. And the special sort of formation of these exceptional problem-oriented, challenge-oriented, cross-sector, you know, kind of coordinating bodies should no longer be an exception. We are poised at a point where you don't have to be New York City or Chicago or L.A. to come together and commit to uh, collaborative problem-solving and collaborative investment. You don't require um, a, a sort of revolution in funding or in um, electoral politics to be willing to get around the table and say, we know, number one, that by bringing community-based organizations, community-oriented um, agencies to the table, we're not doing this out of some favor or out of some sort of afterthought that we need some community input but rather that these agencies and organizations already possess important knowledge and information about neighborhoods that government agencies, it's unavailable to government. And therefore, they're crucial to understanding how to make even a commitment for reinvestment work to be successful. So we have to be open to bring these groups into a policymaking environment oftentimes facilitated by the growth in what are called intermediary organizations, sort of quasi-governmental, but not entirely governed by government, um, agencies that enable cross-sector and community-informed uh, policymaking as well as planned uh, budgeting. So, for example, community development financing institutions, as they're technically called, which are really community banks whose objective is not entirely about profit. They must be profitable, but they are really social purpose banks. And they provide a kind of neutral convening for budgeting in a way that enables government and philanthropy as well as uh, other groups to uh, pool resources, financial and personnel, in ways that can then more effectively target solutions in places, because those banks, in fact, operate in those neighborhoods, are highly aware of the challenges and opportunities um, presented by uh, those neighborhoods, and can inform investment that's pulled across uh, different sectors of government and community in ways that are so much more effective to solving children's problems, to solving uh, criminal justice problems, education problems, because they're understood as an interconnected web that people really know about. doesn't require entirely dependent on a single agency's expertise. Mm. Okay. Uh, Eric Cadora, founder and director of the Justice Mapping Center. It was really great to have you here for uh, this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. My pleasure. Okay. That is going to do it for us today. Uh, come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about something that I have been uh, experiencing over the last week or so. 
Have you been watching the Derek Chauvin trial? I actually haven't been able to watch it. I can't sit through the testimony. I can't watch the images that they're using to make the case against Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd. It's just beyond my emotional capacity. CNN's Nia Malika Henderson feels the same way and wrote about it. And she's going to join us tomorrow to talk about why it is just too hard for either of us to watch this trial, which uh, is on all day right now. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.